Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. My name is Justin Douglas. I am so pumped to have you with me today for this very first episode of Beyond Boundaries. I am a pastor and as a pastor, I often get invited into deeper spaces and places within a person's story or experience. And I find myself sitting and talking with people, whether it's at a coffee shop or over lunch, and just thinking to myself, wow, I wish more people could hear this story or listen to us discuss this topic or learn from this person's experience. This space is me inviting you to listen along to the variety of stories and conversations that may come about. If you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback or comments or questions, or you can reach out via Instagram. I'm at Pastor Justin Douglas. Also, this is a new podcast. Please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. It really makes a difference. On this first episode, I sit down with my friend Nate McConkie and we talk about evolution and the Bible. I think the conversation is really helpful and necessary, especially for those of us who have an awareness of the science, faith, debate, or conflict. Nate is incredibly intelligent and helps me understand some things in the science realm that I am quite honestly ignorant about. This episode was recorded a little while ago uh, before I got my most recent audio studio setup. Uh, the audio quality is still good, but I have since updated my mics and the pop filters. Nate doesn't have a pop filter on his mic, which means at times you'll hear the air hit the mic. Hopefully it isn't too bad for you. And, uh, if it does bother you, please know that in the future episodes, this is the only episode I've ever recorded, uh, with that particular setup. So I really hope you enjoy our conversation about evolution and faith. The conversation I had with Nate McConkie. Enjoy. Nathan, welcome. Uh, I'm so glad you're here with me to uh, chat a little bit about science and faith and life and uh, what you've learned in being a doctor. Want to introduce people to who you are, what you're about? Oh, absolutely. So uh, my name is Nate McConkie, and I'm a cytomolecular biologist turned cardiac electrophysiologist. I got my first degree in biology when I was uh, 19 at Geneva College. I got my bachelor's in molecular biology there. Uh, then I went off for a master's in public health and eventually my medical doctorate. Um, I'm certified in multiple specialties, including general pediatric and adult medicine and working on cardiology and electrophysiology as well. Oh, man. So amazing. Uh, Nathan and I met. Uh, he comes to uh, our campus in Midtown and afterwards we had a Q&A session. And during the Q&A session that Sunday, we were actually talking about science uh, which was really intimidating to find out you were in the room when I was talking about <laughs> science and faith. But thank you for saying I did a good job, even if it wasn't true. Um, but uh, you, you shared a quote that was so good. I'm going to read it, and then I, I'd love to hear you just ex expound on it a sure. little bit, because I know it's a quote that means a lot to you. Uh, you said, mm -hmm. here, it's, it's by Sir William Henry Bragg, uh, Sometimes people ask if religion and science are not opposed to one another. They are, in the sense that the thumb and the fingers of my hand are opposed to one another. It is an opposition by means of which anything can be grasped. Ah, oh, it is beautiful indeed. Yeah. So uh, people often frame the question because they're implying that opposition is necessarily a bad thing, that when two forces are opposed, they're working to counteract or undo one another. And that's, that's not necessarily true. 
And what Sir William Braggs was referring to was specifically the phenomenon of having what's called an opposable thumb. And most people are aware that humans have that, but haven't really thought of what the term means. Um, opposition in the sense of your fingers refers to the fact that your thumb can press against the other fingers, which none of your other fingers can do. And because of that, that allows us to have the sort of pincer grass that we use to pick things up. And the way that Sir William Bragg was using that to describe the interaction of faith and reason or science and religion, however you want to stage that dichotomy, is that there are two forces that tend to approach the same thing from different directions. And often they're most effective when they meet together to achieve that task of understanding a phenomenon. So... For example, faith tells me that some things I accept as true a priori. I don't necessarily have proof that it happens. I don't necessarily have the ability to demonstrate on a daily basis, but I'm going to accept that it's true because of the implications that it has in the world around me. Science tells me nothing is true until I prove it is, or more importantly, if I try and prove it's not and can't do so. Mm. Science tells me that an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence to back it up and that nothing should be taken for granted. Mm. And you really can't use either one of those in isolation to explain the world around you. There's always some mixture of evidence that we can see and conjecture that we have to assume based on the limitations of what we know and what we don't. Mm. So I feel like having those two together can keep them both in check from you know, going off the deep end as can happen sometimes when you're either, you know, hyper-rational and can't accept anything based on faith, or if you cheapen your faith by throwing it whatever sounds emotionally appealing without backing it up with evidence. Mm. So trying to find the balance point between those two things has been an important part of my life. Have you found yourself imbalanced in that scenario at any time in your life? Maybe like <laughs> as a young person or as you entered into the science field, just curious if you've ever felt yourself sway one side or the other. Oh, that's a, that's a daily phenomenon, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> certainly various stages of my life have had different degrees of imbalance between the two. So I was raised in a, a fairly conservative setting. Um, my father came from, uh, well, his father actually was part of the holiness movement. And so um, that was one side on my mother's side. It was more Nazarene, a little bit of Catholicism since we were Italian on that side. Mm -hmm. It just kind of comes with the genes. But yeah. um, I was raised in a highly religious setting and we were typically taught, you know, faith is the end all be all. And yeah. the, these are the things we believe and there's not really a reason to question why it's just sort of how it works. And very frequently there would be little discussions that would come up just through daily life. Like we would go to... Uh, you know, the caverns up on Presque Isle, north of Ohio, we'd go there for a vacation and they had these underground rocks and they'd say, oh yeah, well this formation was made billions of years ago during this particular era. And you know, my dad would kind of roll his eyes and say, oh, they think the earth is billions of years old. You know, clearly it's only <laughs> 6,000 because, you know, the Bible says so. Yeah. Or, you know, we'd go to the Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh and they'd be talking about like, you know, uh, vestigial structures and humans that are leftovers from evolution. Of course, he mm. chuckled himself because who would believe such a silly thing? Mm. And so I, that was the model that I was given. That's what I grew up with. And so I was taught that whenever science and faith would seem to disagree with each other, faith would ultimately be the trump card. Sure. And, and that was what I was shown. That was how I embraced it. And that was how I lived much of my life. Um, I would say that I first started to see the, actually, I can tell you exactly when I started to see the difference. It was on my ninth birthday. Uh, your I remember ninth birthday. <laughs> it was on my ninth birthday. Your ninth, you're truly a scientist uh, on so your I, ninth birthday. It was it on my ninth birthday. <laughs> and the reason I know that was because one of my gifts that I had gotten was this, you know, 
miniature scientific encyclopedia that I had asked for. I was just kind of getting to the idea that this was what I wanted to be when I grew up. I want to be a scientist of some kind. Yeah. And I remember reading the section about you know the beginning of life, and they were describing the phenomenon of abiogenesis, which is the idea that non-living things eventually became living things. Mm. And that was essentially the first step that permitted evolution to occur moving forward. And I read all about how these amino acids and sugars form by cosmic radiation and these primordial soups and all this different thing. And I said, well, this sounds very different than Genesis 1. And, mm. and I went to my mother at the time and I said, hey, she's still my mother. It's just yeah. weird phrasing. But <laughs> she was the one who happened old. to be there at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I said, hey, mom, this is kind of interesting. Have you heard about this theory? And she said, oh, yeah. I mean, there's some people who think that, but, you know, they're wrong. Mm. Um, but it seemed weird because I, I started to appreciate, especially at that point, seeing it published in a book. Like, there are a lot of people who seem to be fairly convinced of this. And I can't think of any good reason why they'd make something like that up. Yeah. And so I started reading into it a little bit more. And I started seeing these two parallel tracks that seemed to develop um, for different ways that people explained the world around them. And, and more intriguingly to me, how they backed up those claims. Mm. There's a difference between here's what we've been told and take a look at this and see what you think. And the latter is a lot more satisfying because anyone can go to the evidence and examine it for themselves. And so I started seeing like, well, what are these things that I might be able to use that could be more trustworthy than just, you know, someone told me something. Now, this didn't shake my faith in God or in the story of the Genesis account. All of that seemed perfectly compatible for me. It was just a question of mechanism more so than anything else. How did this stuff actually happen? But, you know, I had this little idea in my head of how the earth got started, and this was a different picture that I wasn't familiar with. So I, I didn't necessarily have like this moment where, you know, I threw the Bible down in disgust and said, I've been lied to all my life. You know, there was never any moment like that. <laughs> so there was never a moment like that. But when did you, I mean, obviously at nine, you began to become aware that there were two, you know, uh, different tracks, like you said, of mm -hmm. thought on science and faith and even just the Genesis one narrative versus evolution, the age of the earth, you, you began right. to be, became aware that these were conversations happening. At what point did you begin to form an opinion about those? Obviously it was started there, but like, when did you begin to feel pretty strongly that like, I can hold a position that the earth is older than my faith tradition has told me yeah. while also not denying my faith tradition. Cause a lot of people feel, first of all, props to you for not feeling like you had to exchange faith for science, because I've met so many people who have felt like if I'm going to believe this, I can no longer believe this. Like mm -hmm. they, they see it as an exchange. Like right. if I'm going to enter into this belief system, I have to now deny this belief system. What I guess what's unique about your story and that you didn't have to make that exchange. Um, but also like as as you got older and continued to learn more about science, I'm curious to, to hear what other things were in conflict or what other things you were learning along the way. Yeah. I, I think that I first developed a fairly solid opinion about the answer to some of these questions, more so when I was in college than anywhere else. So from, for much of my education, at least for middle and high school, I was in a, a private Christian school. Okay. And there was, there was an effort to teach science candidly with what the evidence told us, but there was also a fairly heavy skew towards the creationist narrative. Sure. And, and specifically a young earth, literal six-day creationist narrative. And I, 
I was a little bit dissatisfied with that because I felt like there was a little bit too much oversimplification, if not outright mockery, of certain arguments made in the scientific explanation for some of these things. And I, I started to realize that, you know, maybe maybe I really do need to go and look into this a little bit more on my own, uh, which is something that had been in motion for a long time. And this was in college or in high school? Well, this was in high school, high school that okay. I was having this. Because, I mean, even though I went to a Christian college as well as a Christian high school, there was a difference in how the evidence was presented. Okay. I would say I had not really been given a solid framework on the theory of evolution until I was in college. Yeah. Everything up until then was like, oh, and then an alligator laid an egg and out came a bird, you know, and that's silly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, college was the first time they said, okay, well, here's how natural selection actually favors adaptations that are more favorable for the environment. So they have more of their progenitor and that particular gene becomes more prevalent in the community. And over time, there is descent with modification. Like mm. that is not something I heard in middle school for, for good reason, perhaps. I mean, it's not something sure. that's easily accessible when you first hear it. But I that was the first time that the arguments for the existence of different species or the age of the earth was given the same treatment as less controversial things like gravity and mathematics. Because I picked up on the difference. There's a difference in how, you know, physics and chemistry were taught compared to how biology was taught mm. or geology. Yeah. And that was very conspicuous and, and suspicious, really. Yeah, that's right. I didn't even think about that when you think about the other sciences. Right. Because you never, yeah. like, and, and you see this in politics a lot, too. A lot of people have very forceful opinions about things like climate change, about evolution. You will never hear someone have a very forceful opinion about organic chemistry. You'll never have someone who has a really forceful opinion about, like, kinematics and dynamics in terms of, you know, motion and yeah. energy. Like, that. that's not very controversial to people. Sure. But everyone seems to have some expertise they wish to offer on those other fields. <laughs> Whether they're educated Whether they or not. Whether they possess that expertise or not, to <laughs> yeah. my frustration. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess it was really in college when I first started getting the necessary arguments to defend this position that mm. I really feel this is a more satisfying explanation than what I've been told so far. But again, mm. I didn't find it incongruous with having faith mm. because I've always... I mean, I've always interpreted the Bible as giving reason and justification for the way the world functions, not necessarily an explanation for the particular mechanics of how it works, uh, the exact way in which God created the earth or brought mankind into existence doesn't really have a great deal of significance for the expectations placed upon us and our role in our interaction with him. Mm. So how you get there is fascinating for people like me who make a profession of that sort of thing, but not really necessary. And yeah. if you're making a book like the Bible that anyone should be able to pick up and glean useful wisdom from, it, it can't be that esoteric on focusing on the minutia. Sure. And... That being said, there's still so much evidence in the Bible that God keeps those things in mind when giving specific instructions to his people. And, and for example, the book of Leviticus, yeah. probably one of the earliest known documents of a public health code, I would like to believe. Wow. And, and it's really fascinating to look at the book of Leviticus from a scientific perspective to think of just how far ahead of the curve the Israelites would have been had they been practicing some of these things that maybe their neighbors would have had no idea was even relevant, like the prohibition against having mold in their houses. Um, they cleaned mold out of their houses and had the priest inspect the home for cleanliness because that's what God told them to do, not because they knew they were protecting themselves against aspergillosis and histoplasma capsulotum infections. Yeah. But because they did those things, they did not necessarily get that sickness 
darkness when their neighbors might have. Because it said in Leviticus, don't consume shellfish, which seems like a really weird prohibition, they did not get Vibrio infections, a flesh-eating bacteria that can kill you in a span of hours, but their neighbors did. And God didn't say, you should probably avoid this mold because it actually has branching septate hyphae that can infiltrate the pulmonary vasculature and cause overwhelming sepsis. He just said, just take my word for this and clean them all up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just follow this law. Like, just, just do what I say, guys. <laughs> Why? Because I said so, kids, you know? <laughs> like, and it would, be, it would be fascinating and a revelation of his wisdom if he had included some of the justification for some of these things. But it would also not have been relevant if his people were loyal enough to take it at face value. Sure. Now, that being said, we don't have to take things like cleaning mold out of your house on faith anymore because we have gotten sufficient reason to do so based on our understanding on what things like mold can do. Exactly. We don't have to invoke religious justification for it. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, that's part of the reason why many of the laws in Leviticus aren't necessarily in place today, at least in the same sense. Sure. And often that's been described as the ceremonial law, for example. Yeah. But I I think that there is actually practical utility to having followed it that may not be as relevant today. Yeah, because you have cultural, but you also have... So, so like, wrapped up in the 600-plus laws that exist, you know, uh, you have cultural laws... Uh, and you also have health laws, like Mm -hmm. you have, you have all the, like, so it's also important to separate some of those out too, that some were to set the people apart, um, in particular religious ways, but some were definitely for their betterment. Mm -hmm. Like you said, even in a, uh, now we, a measurable scientific way, like what, what is it? I think it's like the, uh. Is it the sixth day to circumcise, I think? I'm and, talking about the uh, vitamin K. The vitamin K, K count. I had heard crackers, the vitamin yeah. K count is like at the highest, which is the what, blood clotting? Well, uh, or, a little more sophisticated than that, but okay, you're on the right go, track. Okay, can you go so, ahead? And, well, we'll tease that out <laughs> yeah. for me because I, so, I, I, I've heard that once, but I, I, I haven't necessarily fact-checked that, but yeah. I... I I feel like the source I heard it from was pretty reliable. It's, it, you're close. So vitamin K is used by the liver to produce certain clotting factors called factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. And there's a combination of things that has to happen for you to have those clotting factors. Um, one is you need to have enough bacteria in your gut to make vitamin K. Mm. So everyone has E. coli in their gut. Everyone. It's a normal resident in our intestines. Now, it's not the nasty mutant E. coli that causes overwhelming infections that you hear about on the news. Yeah. It's the friendly kind. And one of the things it does in exchange for its rent is it gives vitamin K. It's one of the few bacteria that can produce it based on the normal things Mm. we eat on a regular basis. Now, when a newborn comes into the world, their gut's basically sterile. It's never seen bacteria before, if Mm. if the body did its job at least. So there has to be time for it to grow and populate in order for that to take over. The other thing is their liver has to wake up in order to use that vitamin K to make these clotting factors. And most of what the liver does in the womb is clearing out toxins, but the circulatory system in the baby interfaces with the mom's circulatory system and her liver kind of picks up the slack. Mm. So baby's liver doesn't quite wake up and do its full job right away at birth. Um, We know that if you don't have vitamin K at birth, you're at risk of spontaneously bleeding. And uh, a measurable portion of infants have that happen when they're born to the point that nowadays we give every single baby that's born a vitamin K injection to prevent them from bleeding into their brain, which can Mm. happen until the bacteria eventually develop in their gut. 
So um, that idea of waiting six days for circumcision probably doesn't apply if you can inject vitamin K directly into the baby. Yeah, and of that, course. Yeah, you know, yeah, So yeah. nowadays we do it, you know, the day they go home, maybe two days later. Would it be feasible that within six days the vitamin K count in the child would be higher? Yeah, it, it would be, it the, would the, be um, the factor count is how we would describe yeah. it. Vitamin K makes the factors, but it's, mm. I'm just nitpicking. I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> nitpick away. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. So but you're, you're on, you get yeah. the idea. Of Interesting. It at least. Yeah. So I just think it's fascinating that there are. What I think is fascinating is that when you, as a scientist, look at the Bible, there are things that scientifically you can look back and say, wow, that made a lot of sense from a scientific standpoint. Right. But I don't know that when I read Genesis 1, I'm reading that the same way I'm reading the Levitical Code. Like, so, right. so explain to me how you would talk to somebody like, uh, let's say, just for the sake of conversation, that I am a six-day... 24 hour, seven day, 24 hour literal creationist. You know what I mean? Like I believe the exact way it happened in the creation mm-hmm. narrative is the way it is. Uh, evolution is not real, you know, fake news, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what, what would be your on-ramp to, to try to convince that person? And not even that you, this is a, you know, an agenda that you have, but more like, if that person entered, like, wanted to have a legitimate conversation with mm-hmm. you about, hey, I, I want to know why you call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus and you are able to synthesize your faith with a very different view of the world than I've been taught is necessary to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes, because I've had that conversation many times. Yeah, so I want to hear... Especially with like my classmates at these fairly conservative institutions. Yeah. And I think a lot of it hinges on whether or not you accept that inerrancy of the Bible, if you believe in such things, correlates to literal accuracy in the Bible. And, and not just accuracy, because that implies that if you're not accurate, you're false. Mm-hmm. Um it's, is the Bible actually making a declaration of fact when it says some of these things? And, and you can tell someone something, you alluded to this in your sermon, that's not factual per se, but is still true. Yeah. Like if someone comes in and they say like, you know, why do I have lupus? I would say, well, your immune system is getting confused and it's attacking normal tissues. That is true insofar as it's an accurate depiction of what happened, but it's not factual. White blood cells don't get confused. They don't attack like they're fighting a battle. It's sure. all based on chemical interactions and cross-reactivity of you know, T-cell receptors and however else you want to describe it. And another way of saying that is like uh, you, could, you and I could see the same sunset, and right. I could say that's beautiful. Right. And you could be like, yeah, that's beautiful. But mm-hmm. is it beautiful because it's a fact or is it beautiful because like my objective truth is that, wow, it's true that that's beautiful. Well, then someone else could come along and be like, oh, I don't think it's that An beautiful. An ugly sunset, yeah. Well, is it, <laughs> then it's no, it's not really, it's not something you could like test to fact, yeah. like in a scientific way. It's something that's objective to the right. individual. So truth and fact are important distinctions. And I think you're getting onto something especially when we're studying the Bible. Right, right. right. The way you could turn that into a fact is saying Justin finds it beautiful, and then Mm. someone could ask Justin, confirm that is accurate, and now we have a fact. But Mm. whether you're saying something about Justin or about the sunset determines how much you can say about that sort of thing. But going back to the earlier point, it is generally understood by most people who read the Bible that some things are written as historical accounts and some things are written as allegory or poetry. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Jesus was fond of doing when he came to things like the parables. 
And he was even asked at one point, like, why are you speaking in parables? And essentially he said, some people are going to get this and some people aren't, but this is the best that I can, to paraphrase Jesus, dumb it down a bit Mm. so that anyone listening can kind of participate in this discussion. And so likewise, I see the Genesis account as a description of the overall spirit for what God was accomplishing and what ended up unfolding with the creation of man and with the earth in general. But I I think it is a bit of a stretch to say that it is necessarily historically accurate down to the letter. And I would point to, in addition to things like the parables, I'd point to the dreams that God sends people. Joseph's entire deal was interpreting dreams because direct information from God doesn't necessarily come in a perfect one-to-one representation of what's happening in real life. Mm. And so more often than people are given the idea that they need to have in order to understand something more so than the factual knowledge to understand the mechanisms behind how that thing took place. Um, So some people are accepting that that happens in the Bible. And the big question is just, does that apply to the Genesis account? Um, You Mm. can tell by some things like the literary style in which it's written that it's more poetic necessarily than... Especially Genesis 1. Exactly. More so than the rote recollection we see in things like the Book of Numbers. But... Uh, a lot of times when people do have staunchly held opinions about things like the age of the earth, it often comes down to what they perceive as scientific facts. They'll pull up books, they'll pull up the Ken Hams of the world and say, well, I heard that someone said radiocarbon dating wasn't accurate, or that they found that by glacial ice cores, you can document the age of the earth as being, et cetera, et cetera. And and that kind of has to be addressed on a point by point basis. Yeah, You kind of do have to get into the weeds a little bit with that, because if people have entrenched themselves in facts, it's it's a good thing. It means they're at least heeding logic and trying to build a solid argument, but that also means that's the degree at which I would engage them. Sure. Um, sure. So if someone has just been told their whole life this is true. Right. But, and by true, I mean factual. Right. Uh, that... But they've never necessarily had evidence to back that up. Yeah. If then, then there's a different approach because that's yeah. more the approach of someone who maybe just needs to have uh, an expansion of understanding, exactly. kind of like you had at nine years old. Exactly. Uh, and if someone, like you said, who studied Ken Ham knows, you know, been to the Creation Museum, knows yeah. it all, right? Uh, maybe they are the type you engage on a scientific level. Mm -hmm. So as you've engaged people on a scientific level, maybe give me three things that you've noticed are trends and some scientific um, ways that you've challenged those. Like, like you, you mentioned carbon dating. That's definitely a a popular one in, in, in that, in that arena. But I'm curious from your experience, what you found. Very often it comes down to evolution. That's the thing people can't necessarily accept. Many people are willing to deal with the idea of an old earth if you go into things like the gap theory, the idea sure. that, you know, the fall did not necessarily come the following day after creation yeah. and that some time could have elapsed. And there's a lot of ways of explaining away the age of the earth. But the trickiest thing people get hung up on is the idea that humans aren't so special that they were just created whole cloth out of dust, that they had come out of earlier creatures mm-hmm. and had gradually moved towards what we now call human. And and that was admittedly one of the less magical things about coming to the scientific perspective in my experience as well. And many times people will point to things like, um, well, more, more importantly, they try and counteract arguments like the presence of vestigial organs or the idea of similar skeletal structure, despite the fact that it doesn't make a whole lot of 
uh, teleologic sense, perhaps, like the fact that giraffes and humans have the same number of bones in their neck. Like, that's kind of a weird coincidence, isn't it? That's really... I didn't know that. We both have seven. I, by the way, I know nothing about science. Okay. So, so like, you, you could literally drop scientific fact knowledge on me all day. I, and, 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 and to be honest, it's very relevant to this conversation because... I was homeschooled, mm-hmm. so uh, which, by the way, I, I felt like I got a good education, but the same, similar to you, um, uh, very slanted in my scientific understanding. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a very conservative uh, Christian school where I only took one science class mm. because my track was theology, so I didn't need to take science. I just had to take, you know, whatever I needed to to get through. I actually think I could have taken two science classes, but I had a chance to take a different class that wasn't science or science. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with science. I, I, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and, and that was taught from a very creationist perspective, Mm -hmm. the like intro to science or whatever it was, you know what I mean? Um, so like, I've never even like looking at my life now at, um, you know, I'm 33, I've only ever had uh, evolution explained to me by pe- primarily by creationists, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. So yeah. I've only I, I've primarily heard it from that perspective, but also from me having to go out and and hear from other resources. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've had to reach out to whether it's podcasts or other things like that to try to to try to get. Uh, access to those different theories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, to the theory of evolution, but even like all the different evidence attached to that. Yeah. So, so my question to you is like, as you, as you tell me, like giraffes have the same amount of bones in the neck, like that, that, that's fascinating. Interesting. I didn't know that. What are other reasons for people to consider evolution as, or, or even like if you, if you had to explain evolution to somebody in a, in a minute or two, what would be the reasons that you would tell them to believe in evolution? You mean like, sorry, explaining what evolution is and how it happens or why we see that it happens even in humans? Why don't you take one minute on both? Okay, sure thing. Because <laughs> I would love to I would love to hear <laughs> both of those. So evolution, as we understand it today, could be simplified to descent with modification, the idea that the offspring of an organism is going to change gradually compared to their predecessors. And the reasons that happen relate to two forces that craft the, the changes that occur. Um, one is the development of spontaneous mutations, which all of us get on a daily basis, mm-hmm. to the point that there are some systems of our body, like the immune system, that rely on them to function. That's yeah. a whole separate lesson we can talk about at some point. But for now, yeah. just recognize that it is an intrinsic function of anything that has DNA, that some mistakes will come with transcript, uh, transcription or translation or duplicating that DNA. Um, some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, so it is by the presence of these mutations that certain devastating diseases come into existence. It's also the way that certain proteins or functions in the body can change and acquire new abilities. So the thing that judges between the two, if you will, is what we refer to as natural selection. The idea that more successful genes tend to be more prevalent. So if you had a mutation that caused you to die suddenly, you probably wouldn't have any kids. 
and that means that gene dies with you. So over time, the sudden death gene is not going to be as common in the population, and it will be, quote, selected against, as we say. Meanwhile, if you had a genetic mutation that made you, for example, very resistant to heart attacks, then you would probably live longer than most people would. Spread more offspring. Exactly. You could probably spend more time raising them, giving them necessary advantages in life. There are a lot of benefits that could pass on, and indeed we see that happen. There is, for example, what's called the PCSK9 protein, which is used in regulating cholesterol. Um, We have found that people who have a defect in this protein don't have as much cholesterol buildup in their body, and they very seldom have heart attacks. Mm. To the point that we actually have... um, developed a number of new drugs, not me personally, but we as science. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are a number of new drugs that work by blocking that protein to see if we can replicate that effect in people, and indeed we can. We can cause people to have better control of their blood cholesterol than pretty much any medicine we've used before in some cases. Wow. Now, those are still investigational, so I don't want to like promote these as some miracle cure. But yeah. we have made advances in science by looking at mutations that have just popped out of nowhere that seemed very beneficial. So that is kind of the, the double-edged sword of evolution. Random mutations and mixture of genetic material produces new features. Natural selection decides which ones live on and which ones die. And the ones that are more useful tend to be more common because those are the ones that people live with. So over time, these forces gradually cause things to be shifted more and more to the point that they tend to be, we say, more suitable for their environment. We don't say better, we don't say stronger, more fit, because science doesn't make those sorts of value judgments. Um, Mm. We say more suitable for the environment. So that being said, um, Charles Darwin, of course, who everyone knows Mm -hmm. for evolution fame, um, he studied the finches in the Galapagos Island, and he found that depending on the prevalence of certain food sources, the beaks of the birds tended to change in their prevalence. There was one type of beak that seemed well-suited for cracking open nuts versus another one that was good for reaching in and plucking berries. Mm -hmm. And depending on which one of those food sources was more prevalent, he'd see these finches have different types of beaks over time as one population was more successful than the other. Mm. Um, so it's at the very least, most people, even staunch creationists, believe in what's called microevolution, which is the idea that a species will respond to these selective pressures. Um, that's the basis for things like antibiotic resistance. If I yeah. give someone an antibiotic long enough, eventually I've selected for the bacteria in their body that are resistant to it because all the others died off. So if that patient gets an infection with that same bacteria again, it's more likely to be one that's resistant to that antibiotic. It's pretty hard to function in science or medicine without accepting that. What gets a little trickier for people is what's been described as macroevolution, the idea that these changes can be so impressive you can create an entire new species off of it. And because that's not something you can see overnight, it's not something I can prove in the lab, we have to see evidence that it has happened over who knows how much time in the past. So there are some things in particular related to homology between different organisms, meaning some similarities between their anatomy that make us think that could have happened. Uh, The fact that humans, for example, have a coccyx, which is a bone that we think is kind of like a tail. Um, the coccyx has three bones, the sacrum has five, both of those form the bottom section of your spine. And it creates a, a, an area of your spine that's about the size of the palm of your hand overall, but mm-hmm. it has the same number of vertebrae as your entire neck. And so the fact that these vertebrae mm-hmm. seem to have kind of shrunk and shriveled suggests similarities to other organisms that actually do have tails with a similar structure and that we just seem to have lost it for some reason. Interesting. Um, a weird idea for people to think that humans had tails, but, you know, a lot of things that are genetically similar to humans, like monkeys, do. 
I will. So I, by the way, I just want to briefly go on a tangent on this real quickly. No, go ahead. No scientist believes that humans evolved from monkeys. I don't know who is telling people that crap. So okay. the idea is if humans evolved from monkeys, it means that we were more successful genetically than monkeys and there should not be monkeys anymore. Most people will actually point to that fact as proof, quote-unquote, that we didn't evolve. They're actually quite correct. We didn't claim to have evolved from monkeys. Mm. The suggestion is that humans and monkeys share a common ancestor, mm. something earlier on in history that eventually speciated, meaning it separated into one group of organisms that eventually became humans and one that eventually became monkeys. Gotcha. And because that ancestor was supplanted by those new organisms, it is extinct. Yeah. So it's not that there's like a missing link, quote unquote, between humans and monkeys. It's more that we had a common ancestor. And that's one thing that people tend to misconstrue when they're talking about some of these arguments. But sorry, I just need to touch on that. So would the idea be just for a layman like myself, who, who's not scientific, uh, that that particular common ancestor would have spread their DNA in different directions, would have had offspring that yes. would have then went and, and eventually the 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 offspring would have taken the the genetics of that common ancestor two different directions. Exactly. So maybe some of their offspring went into a temperate rainforest, and now the genes that were rewarded with more successful offspring are the ones for climbing in trees and avoiding predators, whereas another one might have gone north to a frozen tundra, and then more body hair would be more effective, a slower metabolic rate, the ability to hibernate perhaps could have come out mm. of that. So that's the, that's the central crux of evolution, is that it makes you suitable for your environment, not necessarily better in a subjective sense. And what's suitable for your environment changes depending on where you put them. Yeah. Um, so to some other things that can support this idea, um, we often talk about what are called vestigial organs. And so for some people, they'll point to something like, oh, the appendix is a really popular target nowadays. The appendix is suspiciously similar in its location to where other animals have a second stomach. So mm. cows, for example, have four stomachs. Many mammals have multiple stomachs, depending on what they consume, because you know it may take multiple rounds of mechanical breakdown of food for it to be digestible. And it was thought that as humans moved towards a more processed diet, especially as agriculture developed and were relying more on simple plant materials, mm. that there might have been a mutation where that stomach didn't form. But because we don't need it, it wasn't selected against if anything, there's no need to waste the energy making a second stomach. So the organisms that had that mutation were more successful. Interesting. So things like that, and people have formed arguments against it. They've said, well, we've shown that if you remove someone's appendix, then their bacterial flora in the gut tend to be less successful. And it, it can kind of work as like a little pouch where bacteria can hide, if you will. Mm -hmm. And if, for example, the bacteria in your gut get washed out by an acute infection or something, then they can come out of the appendix and repopulate. And in that sense, that is actually a useful function of the appendix. It's, it's been postulated. But we've also shown that if you remove the appendix routinely when you're in the belly for surgery for any other reason, really nothing bad seems to happen. Mm -hmm. So we could probably do without it and be just fine. I know multiple friends who've had their appendix removed. Exactly. Perfectly healthy. And consider also that the appendix can get frequently infected and rupture and kill people. Yeah, exactly. So of the two options, it seems to do more harm than good in most people. Yeah. Um, and then there's a number of other structures like that in the body, but most of them aren't quite as impressive or, or as hotly contested. Sure. What's more fascinating, but a little bit harder to access for people is vestigial genes. So the idea that our genome, even though it contains 3 billion pairs 
of bases, and the bases are the letters of the genetic code, G, C, A, or T, or, okay. or U for RNA. Um, there are six billion of those letters in our genetic code, and only a small fraction of them actually seem to do anything in terms of coding for specific proteins. So the way DNA works is it forms a blueprint by which certain parts of your cells assemble amino acids into proteins. And those proteins do basically everything of relevance in the cell. They form chemical signaling factors, they form receptors and channels and transporting molecules, mm. structural integrity to the cell, most of the most important functions are carried out by things that are coded for in the DNA. Um, but what's fascinating is how much of it seems to be pretty much junk as far as we could say. Hmm. But that being said, I mean, there is some utility to that. If you go out and you expose yourself to the sun's rays, you may get some mutations because as UV goes through the skin, it can do some funny things to your DNA. And if every single piece of DNA was important, then every time that happened, you would get some serious illness or mutation. So the oh, fact yeah. that most of it is just basically, you know, blank paper, if you will, that could be just, you know, taking bullets, so to speak, to mm. protect the actual DNA, hiding the needle in the haystack, so to speak. So sure. that also, there's a decent argument behind but what's more compelling is to see how the genetic code was arranged in the particular way that it was. Um, and, and that'll make a little bit more sense as I describe an example. Um, probably the one piece of evidence that definitively told me, oh yeah, evolution is definitely real, was the discovery of the syncytion protein. So syncytion is a protein that causes cell membranes to merge together. And they form what's called a syncytion, meaning a group of cells that are all sort of united, if you will. Now, cells attach to each other with little intercellular adhesion molecules all the time, but they don't necessarily fuse to become one cell, mm. except in the presence of this protein. And the way the body uses it is to seal off the cracks between cells in the placenta. Mm. So if you think about it, your immune system is programmed to attack anything that isn't yourself, right? But that could include a baby. Because when a woman is pregnant, half of the baby's DNA is foreign to her. So mm. half of the proteins the babies makes, half of the cell types that they can produce, these things all look different than mom cells. And yeah. the immune system would know that if it saw it. And the way that your immune cells attack a bacteria or a pathogen of any kind is actually by slipping between the cracks of cells to exit the blood vessels and they go into the tissues. So if you didn't have this protein syncytion, which seals off those cracks in the placenta, then the mother's immune system could actually cross over and harm the baby. It's been shown just, actually not just about every single mammal that has a placenta has this protein. Now, huh. at this point you might say, well, of course they do. I mean, it seems like it's very useful. Why wouldn't God give it to everyone? But I haven't told you the most fascinating thing about syncytion. Syncytion actually comes from a virus. So when a virus infects a cell, it uses a protein like that to merge its membrane with the cell in order to get inside. And actually, where we see the syncytion code in the gene, there are components of what look like a dead virus gene on either side of it. Mm. So we know there are viruses like HIV, which actually merges its DNA with the cell's DNA. That's what makes HIV so hard to treat. It literally throws in its genes with the human genes. You can't necessarily get them out. Mm. And that's what's called a retrovirus. And it's been thought that everyone has at least 10 of these virus genomes inside their DNA. We inherit them from our parents. Mm. So what that means is this was not something that humans necessarily had from the beginning. It's not that our genome naturally included this protein. It's a protein that came from a virus 
and our body seems to have sort of stolen this protein, if you will, neutralized the virus and just used the protein for our benefit, which is kind of cool from a scientific perspective. It's pretty amazing. But it also means that we could not have had placentas before that virus came into the genome. And it also means that unless that virus individually infected every single mammal that has a placenta on Earth, Mm. it would make more sense if it got into just one and then it was passed down throughout the ages. And so as a pastor, I could say, potentially, God actually, if, if I was to, to, to just mm-hmm. des- desire to find the synthesis of creation and maybe evolution, I guess theistic evolution, mm-hmm. some might call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that when you look at something like that, it's like, how, how might God have even said like that virus is what life needs to continue to, 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 exactly. to go, right? And, like, and that's, that's what's fascinating. And, and one of the things that particularly intrigues me is trying to imagine some of these terrible things that we deal with in a fallen world, how they might have been created with a different function in mind. So a virus is just a little package of DNA that's designed to enter into a cell and deliver that DNA. Was this how God pushed software updates? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like this was the, this was the updates on the phone. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, no, well, well, this is a great question, though, because when I talk to people who are creationists, mm-hmm. I can actually normally convince them from a biblical point of view. Like looking at the, the, the word day, in, in Genesis, I can get them to typically understand that that could mean a period of time instead of just a 24-hour literal day. I can right. usually even point out that the sun and the moon, which govern a day, aren't even created till the fourth day. Mm-hmm. So are the first three days even days since the things that mark the days? Like, right. If you want to read it from a literal perspective, it leaves a lot of questions too. But one of the things that they always come back at, okay, Justin, if you are a theistic evolutionist, um, if that's the direction you would go with the creation story to, to, to create more of a framework here that, that allows for science and allows for God to be at the center of creation. Well, would God use death to, Mm. to further life? Like to like, uh, and obviously assuming pre-fall, this is all happening pre-fall, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you have death before, uh, before that, how, have you ever thought about that? And what do you, what's I, your answer? I to that? I'm just curious because the way you just said that, yeah. even that the idea that it, that, that these, even going down to the cells and being like these viruses that we now see in their corrupt state, what were they like pre-corrupt? Right, That's right. an interesting way of thinking about it. Well, it's, it's interesting. So I would point out by first describing the fact that the human body already contains things that assume death to some degree. Like I, I don't believe that, the first humans were created without an immune system, for example. Mm. The only reason we need an immune system is because our body's under attack by things trying to kill us every day, right? Yeah. So if you believe that God created us as is now, you've already assumed that he had in mind that we would be at risk of death. Okay. So, you know, it's things like that get a little bit tricky because... I mean, on one hand, you could say, well, God knew what was going to happen. He knew I had to prepare these people for when they inevitably failed because nothing surprises God. He planned these things in advance. Sure. But on the other hand, it's not completely incongruous with the Genesis account to assume that, you know, death was always going to be part of the plan. Yeah. He was at least preparing for it in the beginning. But when it comes to things like how death is a selective pressure in evolution, 
there's two ways of looking at evolution because as I mentioned, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. You're creating mutations and then selecting for beneficial ones. The former of those involves random um, development of changes in the DNA and the second usually involves death as the selective pressure. But you could imagine a different sort of selective pressure and that was sort of the idea behind Lamarckian evolution. Now, I, I want to preface this by saying that modern science doesn't support that most evolution we see is because of the work of uh, Lamarck. And Lamarck was um, a French natural philosopher, I guess we could call him, uh, who preceded Darwin, who believed that essentially the way that evolution would occur, the way that changes could occur in species, was by having something happen to uh, a parent organism that could be passed on to the offspring. So right now, all we can pass on to offspring are genes, and our genes we're typically born with. It's not that we can necessarily pass on something we've acquired in life. It's not like if we go to the gym and work out, we'll have babies that are, you know, born with like 3% body fat and ripped muscles. Like that doesn't work out that way. Sure, yeah. You all have to start over from scratch. But Lamarck hypothesized, well, what about giraffes? And maybe a giraffe was reaching its head up to get to a leaf and they kept doing that and they kept doing that. And somehow they intrinsically changed themselves and their DNA if they would have thought of DNA, which would have preceded him by a bit, but sure. changed whatever it is that's passed on to the offspring. And so you don't just give your offspring what you've inherited, but also something new that you've added. Um, that is not typically how we see it happen in science, but could that have been an example of evolution before the fall had existed? Could it be that organisms were still capable of changing, of, of ascending, if you will, not just fitting their environment, but actually moving towards what God had prescribed them to be sure. based on a, a process like that. And, and maybe it is possible. I can't really say. You could also say from the, from the scenario you just said, is death necessary for evolution? Because technically, if, let's, just, let's just say we're living in, in uh, a place where there is no death. Mm-hmm. And the evolutionary and the evolution process begins. Sure, there's offspring, but does the original cell have to? Does the original organism have to die? Not necessarily, because it could just stay. Yeah. So, I mean, because typically when we talk about natural selection, we're talking about competition for resources. Yeah. So again, the finch who has a beak that's better equipped for berries is going to outperform the other finches that don't during berry season. Exactly. And so it would make sense for that particular strain, if you will, of finch to have more offspring. But the other ones don't need to die off for that effect to happen. Yeah. It does, however, mean that the final product might not be as elegant. It might mean that, you know, if you look at the population of finches, a third of them have ridiculously shaped beaks that are of no particular use and they're just flying around spinning their wheels. Um, but you would still see the progress of the finches who did have better equipped yeah. biology, if you will. So, I mean, what we see nowadays, now that death is definitely a major driving factor yeah, of evolution, exactly. we see extinction events. So we don't see the common ancestor between apes and humans or apes and monkeys, which are different things, mm -hmm. because it has died off. It has been outcompeted. But you could imagine a world where this evolutionary process, based on the carrot rather than the stick, if you will, sure. rewarding good genes rather than killing off bad ones, you would have a greater variety of organisms but you wouldn't necessarily have like a dominant species develop from one genetic lineage. Mm. So there'd be more diversity, if you will, but it wouldn't necessarily be kind of the fine-tuned, only the most well-equipped survive sort of scenario that we see today. And I, I mean, on one hand, 
the way that we look out into the organisms of the world now and how marvelously suited for their environment they appear to be is, is elegant to behold and I think a symbol of God's creation. But, you know, you could also say there's something to say for the God who's sufficiently merciful that he allows the less fit, if you will, to survive. Sure. Um, so I, I could see it. Do you sure. think, so when we look back at church history, we see a time when we believed the earth was the center, you know, yes. uh, not the sun. Yeah. And now I don't know that there's many places I could go and be like, hey, that are religious spaces I could yeah. go where people would be like, How the earth you is believe? definitely the yeah, center. Like, exactly. like I, don't, I don't know there's many places that I could go where that would be the, the dogmatic understanding of, uh, these biblical verses that talked yeah. about the earth not being moved and right. the uh, and 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 the sun standing still and and what's so interesting is we still talk like that today like we still talk like the sun rises and sets yeah. which is so interesting because we still have that language yeah. within us but it's not really obviously what's happening right but yeah but the the point I'm trying to make is within a few hundred years we took this this particular theological dogma that so divided the church for a season, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's just like, that's it's, not even a it's conversation. It's granted, yeah. It's not even a conversation. No one's like, hold on. And I mean, you could also <laughs> talk about the earth being round and flat earth and obviously flat earth making a comeback, which is fascinating. <laughs> but, uh, oh, God but, bless the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but like, so you can look at different things. Uh, I'm trying to say throughout church history, you can look at different scientific uh battles, if you will, with the faith, uh, the theological community. And you can see by reading back at that time and by seeing even some of the heresy trials, mm-hmm. how incredibly important it was. But then fast forward to now, and like no one is on the side of the church. Mm-hmm. My question is, do you think in 100 or 200 years that we're going to be at a place with evolution where people look back at the things like Ken Ham and Bill Nye having a debate yeah. and they're like, how is that even a debate? Like that, this is so obvious. Now for you, it's really obvious because you have multiple degrees. You're using it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. For me, it's, it's less obvious maybe because I'm just not in it as much. And also I'm just not a mm-hmm. scientist, but, uh, but yeah, I'm just curious if you think there's a time coming when this will, like, where, where we'll have more knowledge or understanding, whether that's the age of the earth or evolution mm-hmm. or both. I, I believe it will happen, but I don't think it's going to happen necessarily for those reasons that we'll acquire more knowledge, per se. Because right now, if I ask someone, how can you prove to me that the earth revolves around the sun? most of them wouldn't be able to actually do the mathematics. They wouldn't be able to launch the satellite. They wouldn't be able to draw the astronomical charts and demonstrate the movement of the planets. Most of them would say, well, that's just, I mean, we learned it in science class. It's kindergarten stuff. So <laughs> That's actually probably what I would say. So, I, don't, but, I, I couldn't tell right? you like, with, I like, couldn't tell you the concept. By every observable phenomenon, it sure looks like the sun's going around us with sunrises and sunsets sure. and you know that sort of thing. It's it's a tempting mistake to make because of how we observe the solar system. So clearly it's not because every individual human gained the ability to prove this scientific fact. It was a shift in their way of thinking 
on what was contingent on that fact being true. Oh, that's a good point. And so this comes down to what's been described as the God of the gaps mentality. It's that there are gaps in our knowledge. Everyone has them. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes people just sort of spackle over those gaps with God did it. And mm. essentially, that not only is convenient explanation for things that they don't understand, but in their mind, it enriches the power of God to say like, oh, wow, how astonishing that, you know, God, you know, made the, uh, made the plants turn around us by sending his angels to drag them around like little lamps or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And then as we realize a more fulfilling explanation for these things, as those gaps shrink, their God shrinks with them. And so what happens is people are going to have to make the shift from saying, like, I believe in God because look at all these scientific facts that the Bible confirmed. It has to go to, I believe in God because I've placed my faith in him and I find that my life is better for having done so. And I don't need any particular piece of evidence necessarily to back that up. Yeah. And, and I feel like... I mean, that's, that's an elegant place to be for so many reasons. I feel that the story of Christianity is sufficiently compelling. I shouldn't have to make up or embellish anything to make it more attractive. And yeah. so as I cross off all of these mysteries from things we didn't understand but now can, that doesn't diminish God at all because my faith wasn't contingent on me getting scientific facts out of the Bible. My faith wasn't contingent on me making some claim that I could prove correctly in a lab to someone and say, look how much better I am at science because I'm a Christian. My faith in God is contingent on my personal experience in my walk with Christ. And that's something that I can't necessarily explain to someone else. It's something that I don't necessarily have, like I, I can't describe it in the same terms I would describe a scientific fact with. I would just say that I look at my life before and afterwards, and for me, that's sufficient reason to keep going. And because I haven't necessarily hung my hat on any one particular point, if any of those points fall, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But you find people who build as the foundation for their faith some observable phenomenon in the world. And then you watch what happens when that crumbles. So you, you see someone who prays to God and says, God, if you will just cure my mother's breast cancer, mm. I'll go to church every Sunday and I'll stop swearing and I'll vote Republican or whatever else they think <laughs> they have to do. Yeah. And then they go to the oncologist and they say, wonderful news, your mother's breast cancer is in remission. And they say, praise God, I knew he was real. But then you follow them three years later when mom has a recurrence and all of a sudden everything goes out the window. Because that was what they based their faith on. Yeah. And how many times have we heard the story of someone who went through some trial or affliction, someone who had things not go the way that one would expect it to go if they were really following all the rules. And they say, well, that was a waste of my time. As if that was the function of Christianity. And likewise, we see that happen whenever people hang as the basis of their faith something like, you know, evidence for a little six-day creation or evidence for direct creation without evolution. Like, as these things start to unravel on closer inspection, people are resistant to taking it apart any further because if they do, they risk undoing the ground they stand on in terms of their religion. Yeah. So I think that there probably will be a time when we don't necessarily have these arguments anymore. But I think it's only going to happen if people find a better reason to justify their faith than something they saw in a museum in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I, I think of that as like the house of cards type yeah. deal. Like you you have this faith that you've built, but 
uh, I think it was in Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell talks about um, the two different ways to build your faith. You can build your faith as a house of cards all stacked on each other. One card comes out and the whole thing crumbles, right? Um, And I do see so many people build their faith that way. Mm -hmm. They hold their view of a literal flood in the same way they hold their view in a literal Jesus. Like, like it's like, hold on now. (laughs) I don't know that we hold these on the same level, but because they've done that, they've built this house of cards Mm -hmm. where Rob Bell talks about, and I just thought it was a great analogy. It's always stuck with me, the idea that, um, I, and I, I probably stuck with me because I grew up with a trampoline, a big, one of those big, huge trampolines <laughs> yeah. in our backyard. Uh, and we would go bounce on it and it got old and springs started popping off, mm-hmm. but you could still bounce on it. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how each of these things are like springs. You can still participate in your faith and bounce even when this, when you pull out the spring of the flood and start examining it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know about this anymore. I don't know if I need the spring but you're still able to bounce. Right. Does that make sense? It's yeah. not It's not in conflict with it. everything doesn't come crumbling down when you pull one out to examine it. And then maybe you put it back with just a different, bends a little bit differently now because right. you've, you've got a different uh, take on it, but you were able to keep your faith intact while examining. I think, unfortunately, so many religious communities don't give people the freedom to examine in that way. Yeah. Like, And that, I think, is the... That that's something that I think is so valuable to my to my faith personally. I've grown so much when I've had more freedom to examine. I've actually my faith has actually grown stronger in the things that are most important. Like whereas, like you said, the God of the gaps. I actually think that's like a facade. Like mm-hmm. it really, uh, you're putting your faith in things that that just aren't central. It's not the main thing, and in that place, I think you're just so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like I think there's all this like talk because growing up in that creationist you know uh, understanding of the world, there was this this thought of like you're vulnerable when you go to college. They're going to teach you about this other science, or mm-hmm. they're going to try to you know make you into an atheist. And right. so because of that vulnerability, we're going to cram you with all of this uh, creationist yeah. knowledge. I actually think that that creates more vulnerability. Yes, for when you realize, hold on, there was other ways to hold this, other ways to approach this. I, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And that was, and that was my experience. Exactly. I was given all the ammunition of the creationist argument. And then I went to college, a Christian college, no less. And I was presented this, you know, the ideas of evolution in the same style as anything else in the biological sciences. And I said, Oh, well, this makes perfect sense. Why have I never heard this before until now? And people just sort of dance around these things and don't directly engage it either. So it's, I don't know. And, and on one hand, it's, it's normal human instinct and, and to some degree appropriate to try and back up your faith with something objective. Like if we, oh, of course. We, we cheapen our faith if we throw it at something without a good reason for it. Yeah. Like there's a reason why I have faith in my God and not Zeus or Apollo. You know what sure. I mean? And some of that's based on historical data. Some of that's based on simple logic and how would I envision an all-powerful deity to mm-hmm. behave and interact with people. Like, And there is some you know, genuine concern that scientific facts might also support a few of the things that appear in the Bible. Like, for example, the relevance of the book of Leviticus. Sure. Um, at least certain components of it. There is some very impressive similarity with what I would recommend if I was writing the code for 
you know, a, a populace in Israel. I cannot say that for literally every verse in Leviticus. Some of it utterly astonishes me that yeah. it's in there. <laughs> but like, there are some things in there. I'm like, okay, I don't think that some random people in the desert figured this out on their own. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just my personal experience with this. Mm. Um, so I, I guess the question is then, so what do you hinge your faith on if you can't do it by using it to cover up all the mysteries in life. Like if you need to have some evidence for what you're doing being correct, but you're not allowed to just use a gap in scientific knowledge, you know, what do you hang it on? And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but a lot of it is that, you know, you judge a tree by its fruit and you mm. judge uh, a position or a perspective by its outcomes. And, and we see this in medicine all the time. So we often see in medicine something that works and we don't know why, but we just do it anyway. And maybe someday we find out why. Um, a brief story on that, just because I think it's instructive. No, it's good, yeah. Um, it had been noted that miners who were working with nitroglycerin as a blasting agent seemed to have lower rates of angina, cardiac chest pain. Um, for whatever reason, this was something that a doctor had picked up on at one point. And so we didn't know why that happened. We knew that there was something in nitroglycerin that seemed to be helping people with heart disease. And somewhere, at some point in history, a doctor sat down with a patient and said, I know just what to do to treat your heart disease. I want to give you this explosive, and I want you to eat it. And somewhere, that patient said, wow, that sounds like a great idea. Sure, I'll be your guinea pig. And that <laughs> happened enough times that a study could be done to prove it worked. I don't know who was looking for that. I don't know what IRB they would have gone before for a research project to clarify that that was something they wanted to try. There are so many questions this raises. Yeah. But even today, that is a medicine that we use for people with cardiac chest pain. And we also use it to treat acute heart failure, and it has saved lives. But only because someone said, I don't know how this works, but it works. Let's go with it. And now, of course, we know more about nitroglycerin. We recognize the fact that it causes dilation of the blood vessels, and so you have a decreased preload, so the heart's job is a little bit easier to do. It also drops your blood pressure to allow forward flow, and then you decrease the pulmonary edema. So it makes perfect sense, but it didn't back then. Yeah. And the fact that the way you just said it makes sense was nice. We're going to have to hit, like, 15 seconds back just to hear that again. But, yeah, I mean, it's a bit... <laughs> The point of the matter is just because things are a mystery now doesn't mean they will be always. Yeah. But the effect is still clear. The effect on my life from my faith in making me a more kind, patient, joyful, all the fruit of the spirit person, yeah. the way that it's changed my perspective in a way that informs my decision making as a scientist as well as my interaction with people just as a member of society, I, I don't know how I could do what I do now without it. I don't know how I could spin an argument out of whole cloth based purely in first principles that made me who I am today. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to say that this is irrefutable evidence for why Christianity is the right religion or why God exists. I, I, all I'm saying is that's the basis for my decision and it's worked well for me. Yeah. Do you and, find that it's easier to embrace mystery? I, I know in my evolution of my faith, um, mystery was or doubt was really so ingrained in me as like an evil thing <laughs> and and like now i see so much value in being able to say hmm i don't know there's there's a few different ways that could go and and based on what i know right now i, I don't know which way that went or i don't know yeah. i don't have an answer for that one and and i want to explore and i want to know but i also am like 
I'm I'm kind of comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable not knowing in that I'm lazy to try to <laughs> seek out an answer. I'm yeah. comfortable saying, with what I know now, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think absolutely that's the case for me. And I think a lot of it does stem from my faith. Like I'm accustomed to accepting things that seem like good and wholesome things to believe in, even if I can't necessarily explain the why behind it. And, and that applies to science as well. Like when I'm faced with, you know, a patient who comes in with something I've never seen before, or when I'm dealing with a new medication or a new observation related to the pathology of a disease I've already seen, anytime some unexpected surprise pops up, you know, the scientist in me still says, let's go and figure this out. Yeah. But I'm also fine saying like, well, I may not know at this point, so I'm going to go with what I'm capable of doing at the moment. I'm not going to be paralyzed by indecision because I don't have a clear-cut cookbook answer for this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. And then based on what we learn in the future, maybe I'll have an answer, maybe I won't. Yeah. And I think that that makes me better at my work as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I also have a unique prerogative as a scientist to get the bottom get to the bottom of that mystery. Yeah, because I was going to say, for you, it's a little harder because, like, because the word mystery to you is like, well, let's solve it. A mystery is a challenge to me. Yeah, let's solve it. Like, because solving it could, in your uh, area and field, could mean saving lives. Exactly. And that's that's one reason why I generally don't accept supernatural explanations for anything I see on a daily basis. And I see a lot of what could be described as miracles. Sure. But I can't be content with that explanation. If someone says, well, grandma recovered from her heart disease because I prayed for her, I may say, well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that she's doing well, but I'm not going to accept that she got better because of prayer. I want to find what made her better so that I can replicate that and help other people. Or I want to see if her getting better now doesn't necessarily mean she recovered from the disease and I have to be watching out for something coming back. Sure. Like I, I have to play the skeptic, but I can still celebrate those those pleasant things that happen. Yeah, and it that's like living in the mystery of it, exactly. right? Because you can celebrate like, it. And you can I don't know why she recovered from her VT storm. I didn't up her amiodarone at all, but good for her. Congratulations. I'm so happy. Let me see if I can figure this out. But if not, it doesn't cheapen the marvel of what just happened. And, and you know, that that's true for a lot of things that are completely inaccessible to the scientific approach. Like when it comes to considering things like the origin of the universe, I mean, I, I think uh, Stephen Hawking was famously quoted as being asked, you know, what came before the Big Bang? And he said, well, that's a bit like asking what lies north of the North Pole. Um, mm. Not really a thing, because before the Big Bang, there wasn't a before and there wasn't an after because time didn't exist. Yeah. And so, again, if I'm asking myself something like, well, you know, if God created the universe, where'd God come from? And then I catch myself thinking, well, God also invented the idea that things need other things to create them. And before he put that rule in place, it wasn't true. So I am trying to use reason on the guy who literally invented reason. I'm probably not going to get very far. Yeah. So, I mean, we're hitting, you know, the ends of my ability as a human confined by this universe where I only have the tools available to me. And I have to say that not only do I not understand this, I don't have the tools to ever understand it. And but for God's revelation to us, I wouldn't have a clue at all. Yeah. So I kind of have to accept what I'm given, and I really can't do much more than that. Now, there's a lot you can do within that world, especially when it comes to describing observable phenomena. But the really, really big questions, the ones that differentiate Christianity from other religions, 
may not necessarily be easily answered. You know, I, I can't prove it in a lab. I can't reason it out. I can't, you know, draw the equations on paper to make it true. Yeah. What I love though is that that still keeps such a high view of God. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I, I feel like the more progressive view on theological topics can sometimes cheapen God, like mm-hmm. or 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 lessen the reliability on God. I guess as yeah. uh, you know. Um, and I think sometimes that God of the gaps is a fake relying on God, right? Like it it can, it can be that, but, but what I think is, is interesting about your view is like, um, there's this elevation of God in that, like God is God, you acknowledge that God has an understanding that I don't have, like even as a scientist who's seeking understanding consistently Mm -hmm. like that, there's a humility there, even in that, in that approach, which I think is, is really good. Whereas when I go to some of the more, you know, atheist thinkers, um, and I guess I would even say, um, uh, not, uh, you know, the philosophy of atheism or even the religion of atheism, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes they can be very arrogant in their approach to how they see they're not being a God mm-hmm. and it being so clear. Yeah. And like you said, the, the bang before the big bang or what was before the big bang, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like the, the image of like, well, they don't know. We don't know. Like, like there's this, there's this Mm -hmm. acknowledgement that there's like, um, there's faith happening on both sides, just towards different ends. Right. It seems so. Uh, but this is, this has been a really cool discussion. We're going to have to keep this going, but, uh, we're going to have to close (laughs) it out for tonight. Um, so if, if you had to give like a closing cool fact about evolution <laughs> that someone might not know um, to close this out, Nate, what would that be? All right. So one of the coolest examples that we see the body harnessing the same forces that drive evolution would be in the immune system. Hmm. And I'm, I don't know if I was expecting you to ask this question, but I had been thinking about this earlier today. Um, it's kind of fascinating that our immune system can prepare for literally any new bacteria or virus that we could see. Pretty much anything, even new viruses that maybe didn't even exist, like new strains of the flu, the immune system always seems to have a way of addressing. And the way it does that is actually quite fascinating. It deliberately mutates its own genome. So white blood cells are among the only cells in the body that are capable of creating new genes. And what they do is they basically take the letters of the genetic code and they effectively assemble them randomly, like scribbling on a piece of paper. Hmm. And then all of them use that DNA code to create a new receptor, a protein that can recognize a potential germ. And so they have this weird amalgamation of amino acids and they sort of think to themselves, well, I wonder if this will be useful someday. Hmm. And then they wait. There's actually a testing process. These cells go to the thymus, for example, where the new protein they've created is tested against all of the different things that appear in the body to make sure that white blood cell didn't accidentally make something that could attack the human itself. And then they're sent to lymph nodes or different organs where they basically just wait. And then if a pathogen, if a germ or a virus comes into the body, the first white blood cells that find it will grab it, chop it into little pieces, and they'll carry it to all of these waiting cells with all their different little receptors they've made. And it actually places it up against each of the cells looking for someone who's created a receptor that matches this particular germ. And by dumb luck, eventually they will find one who randomly was able to create something that's actually a perfect fit for this particular germ. 
And so the white blood cell says, well, congratulations, it's your lucky day, and releases a signal that causes it to grow and populate. And so that cell that created this one effective antibody divides over and over and over and over millions of times to create an entire army of white blood cells, each of which is crafting a weapon that was specifically tailored to that particular germ. Oh, my goodness. It's like gladiators happening inside me right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a war. That's and that, crazy. Yeah, and that whole process is based on that twin sword of evolution, creating something randomly through mutation and then selecting for what works. Yeah. So there's, there's an evolutionary process just when a germ comes into my body. Mm-hmm. The immune system uses those same principles of evolution to create a new antibody to fight that germ. Nate, I, I learned a ton. We're definitely <laughs> going to have to do this again around another topic. I think the topic of evolution was a good start, but uh, I've learned a ton. I love talking to you. Thanks for uh, being on. Oh, always a pleasure. Boom. There you have it. First episode in the books of Beyond Boundaries. Hey, it was great to have you with me today on Beyond Boundaries. We are going to explore all kinds of other areas. I've already got quite a few interviews that are banked so I'm hoping every week I can be releasing one Uh, again if you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com you can uh, interact uh, with feedback comments or questions I know this particular episode might spark a lot of comments a lot of questions and a lot of feedback and I just encourage you to do that there or you can find me on Instagram at Pastor Justin Douglas, and we can uh, interact there. If you have follow-up questions for Nate for anything he said or uh, any of that, let me know because we are going to have future uh, conversations. So at the same time, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. It really does make a difference, especially for a podcast like this that's new. And may you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging. 